A lot of music does not function on a per play valuation. It's the kind of music that you just need to get access to the idea a couple times and then it changes your life, but it's not something you want to hear on repeat in the background. And so for that kind of work, different kind of economic models need to evolve. And so that's what's so wonderful about kind of crypto building blocks is that you can, you know, figure out what works for you and for your creative community. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a one size fits all solution. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Means of Creation. This is Lee, and today I'm joined for an episode about music and AI and all of the developments in this very exciting and nascent area of technology with my fellow general partner from Variant, Jesse Walden, as well as Holly Herndon and Matt Tryhurst. Holly is an artist and musician who's been working with machine learning for many years, and Matt is an artist and researcher. And together, they've created a number of projects over the years at the intersection of music and technology, including Holly Plus, which is a voice model of Holly's that's controlled by DAO. And also their more recent project is called Spawning, which is building tools for managing one's AI identity. So it offers tools to allow artists to see if their work has been included in training sets for AI models, as well as to be able to opt out of participating in those training data sets. During this conversation, we talk about all things AI music, what's been happening in that ecosystem, what their learnings were from developing Holly Plus, what they think of crypto now, Grimes' recent announcement about encouraging her fans to create derivative works using her voice, and whether they encourage that model for all music artists, as well as generally the impact that they think AI is going to have on the music landscape and the different industry participants in music. But first, we catch up on one of Holly and Matt's recent creations. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. What's going on right now? It's like we had a baby and the world woke up to AI all at the same time and we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I had this, I had the exact same experience in 2021. I had a baby and that was like, you know, the world woke up to crypto in 2021. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, slow I down. I totally get it. Yes. <laughs> How old is the baby now? He's five months now. Yeah. Cool. Congrats. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you. It's going great. Yeah. There's just so much happening at exactly the same time, which is all wonderful. But yeah, I guess you can't choose. Yes. Yeah. Things, so, yeah. I asked Twitter if they had any questions for you guys. And someone asked, how does it feel to work on spotting while also spotting a baby? <laughs> <laughs> Psychedelic. <laughs> it, it is pretty interesting for that. I mean, it's kind of all the cliches come out about how profound it is to have a child but they're all really accurate. Yes. It seems almost banal to like talk about them where you're like staring at the face. I was using this term heridescent where like depending on what angle you look at the child, you see different family members and like, yeah, your brain's being reoriented, literally reshaped. It's really profound. And yeah, when people are talking about like sentient spirits, you know, you're like, okay, this is, yeah, good timing. I can see why. But yeah. also just practically, like having a kind of startup that's based in the U.S. for the first couple of months actually made a lot of sense because we would just take shifts of being awake with the baby. And so Matt would take the night shift when the U.S. was awake. <laughs> it would just like feed the baby every now and again and like take calls. And do <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of crazy, but it somehow worked. <laughs> There's just so much to talk about. There's so much going on, you know. It's all good. I mean, you prepare for these things. That's the only thing I'm really grateful for in a way is like, I feel at least with the AI conversation, I'm like, okay, I'm really prepared for this. Like, this is fine. 
Yeah, all this work we did led up to this moment. Yeah, exactly. we're like, like okay, this cool. We're, this we're is like, good. We've actually there is actually we've already done little, all the research. We've exactly. already done the hard work. There is actually a little bit of time on this because yeah, you know, it's some of it's catnip. You know. Awesome. Well, let's get into it then. Matt, Holly, and Jesse, you guys have been on the forefront of music and technology for a really long time. And I know AI music is the topic du jour, but you've actually been working in the space for some number of years. And in 2021, I think you unveiled the Holly Plus voice model and DAO. So for those of the audience who aren't as familiar with it, can you give an overview of Holly Plus and that particular flavor of AI-driven content creation? Sure. So my name is Holly Herndon. I do a lot of work with Matt Dryhurst. <laughs> Hello. So we conceived of the Holly Plus project together, and it's essentially, you know, we've been working with machine learning models for years, and we were really interested to try to train a model on my singing voice. When we first started working with machine learning, we realized that it's really important where the data comes from, that obviously kind of drives the output. And it's also a really big kind of ethical question, you know, if you have the rights to use that kind of data or not. So it was a really natural starting point for me to start with my own IP, which is my own singing voice. And so then that kind of opened up a host of questions of, you know, what if I could share that voice with other people to perform through? What kind of different economic models could be formed around that? What kind of attribution models? So it really was a kind of, I don't want to call it a thought experiment, but kind of a provocation because Matt and I both saw that this is very much where machine learning creativity is going. And so we wanted to kind of put out there, what if there was a permissive IP approach rather than a kind of lockdown, you know, DRM, takedown <laughs> approach to intellectual property. But really, it was a culmination of many years of research in machine learning. I mean, I did my doctoral dissertation at Stanford in what year was that? 2018, I think, was when I took me forever to (laughs) submit it. But yeah, I submitted that in 2018. And that's where I was kind of covering some of the the legal frameworks around personality rights versus copyright and, you know, some of the kind of more legal details around voice modeling. So it's been a longtime passion project for the both of us. Yeah, totally. And that was the other side, too, is that like, we use the DAO infrastructure because, you know, going back to like 2017 or whatever, we were thinking about vocal ownership and the idea of sharing the voice, but it was only really with a lot of the tools that were publicly available as a result of, you know, this kind of collective effort of primitives on Ethereum that allowed us to kind of coordinate that in a way that wouldn't be too expensive. <laughs> it was still expensive. It was still expensive, <laughs> but still like... But still just being mm-hmm. able to like plug and play and experiments was actually really useful. And I mean, I think more and more people are coming on board with the idea that a lot of these tools are kind of, you know, really well designed for such a use case. Yeah. And I would love to hear kind of the learnings since you guys launched Holly Plus and the DAO. Like what was unexpected or what surprised you the most in the ensuing years? Did you see like a lot of community participation and creation using your voice model? And who were these people? The first learning is we did it a couple of years too early. In <laughs> mm-hmm. honesty, I mean, this is also during like a really frothy period in crypto, you know, where there was a lot of different stuff going on. And I don't think a lot of people understood what we were doing, if I'm really honest. I mean, we gave a TED right. talk about it where it's pretty clear. That was later, though. Yeah, but yeah, but true. I mean, when we launched the project, it's like th- there's like a core group of people who are like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And yeah, no, a lot of people were like, you know, it's taken up until this year for people, I think, to really kind of 
well, Grok. Pe- people didn't know what a machine learning model was. For example. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So initially, that was kind of the first challenge is like there was a small group of people who got really excited about the project. I think like in terms of challenges, you know, it was a challenge to kind of structure this to be like, okay, how do we come up with a decent economic model? You know, the, the model that we thought fit best would be like a 50-50 split between Holly and what we call like spawning artists. So people spawning new music with her voice. Well, the Holly um, plus Dow. Exactly. And the Holly plus Dow. So it was more like a 10, 40, 50. Exactly. And so putting together like that kind of system in and of itself, you know, there were some challenges like getting the splits in order and so on and so forth. But generally speaking, I think the challenge was more, I mean, I'm joking about it being a couple of years too early, but I think it's somewhat true. Just like, you know, when you're dealing with like a cluster of different concepts that are kind of new to people, right? Like people didn't really know what vocal modeling was. People really didn't know what DAOs were. People didn't really know what <laughs> right. NFTs were. People, you know, when you cluster all of those new exciting things together, you um, get very nerdy participants. Which yeah, is exactly. Awesome. <laughs> you get some like awesome, awesome nerdy participants, and a lot of people being like, "What is this even?" You know. Except for then they write you like a year later and are like, "Oh, I get it." And many people will have experienced this with these kind of more collective, let's say, DAO-like projects. A lot of those kind of exist through brute momentum you know like the the standard approach is you try and get a bunch of people in a discord pumping their bags and like getting really excited and generally those projects tend to run out of steam and our approach really wasn't that like we were trying to be really deliberate and really kind of take seriously this idea of a group of people stewarding usage of a voice and so as a result it never really had that like crazy breakthrough moment with a bunch of people tweeting to try and like increase the value of an nft or whatever like that was never the intention the intention was more to use the tools as governance mechanisms and to that end it worked really well right like we have like simple voting mechanisms to approve usage of the voice a sale went through and the sale was successful so we proved out the thesis but as these things go you know it never generated like a crazy amount of money to keep the project rolling right like i think to date, to be quite honest, we've probably lost money on the project, but like, yes. but for our purposes, but that wasn't the point. <laughs> that wasn't the point. For our purposes, it actually kind of demonstrated that our thesis on where this stuff will go is quite correct. And there's a lot more potential there. Right. Yeah. I mean, we kind of saw a crossroads coming, like, you know, either we're going to see people being really playful and, you know, having this permissive IP approach, which, you know, permissive doesn't necessarily mean everything is permitted. It means, you know, there's some kind of consensual layer where, you know, you can make decisions about what you're comfortable with the public using and not. But there's this kind of permissive approach where there's this kind of like lockdown, all of your IP approach. And that seemed like a future that we didn't really want to see come to fruition. So we were like, okay, what if we put this out into the world? Is this something that other people will pick up and kind of run with? And it appears that's happening. I mean, I've seen several people announce kind of really similar approaches, which I'm excited about. Yeah, it's definitely really cool. I think what Holly Plus pioneered, to me, it really represents like the kind of spiritual and intellectual predecessor of a lot of what we're seeing now in terms of what music artists are doing with AI. I know recently Grimes tweeted that she would split 50% of the royalties on any successful AI generating song that uses her voice. And she also said, like, feel free to use my voice without penalty. I'm curious what you guys think about that. And do you think that this is a model that more musicians should be adopting this? And do you feel like that split, that economic split that was proposed feels fair? I think it's cool. I mean, it's a really similar approach that we took with Holly Plus. 
I think Grimes is in a really, you know, we've known her for years and have been in touch for years. And I think she's in a really unique position to execute her project because, A, you know, for an artist of her stature, she's not signed to a label. That's really unusual. So she has the freedom to do with her voice what she wants. Most artists don't actually have the freedom to do with their voice whatever they or want. it's unclear. It's unclear, yeah. yeah it's a lot of, most contracts specifically state the singing voice. There are usually kind of like stipulations around that. So that's one area that, that where she's quite unique. And also, you know, she has a huge social media following. So for the kind of splits, you know, if you kind of want to do your own version, whatever, and have it, you know, not do the splits and have it in your own universe, that's fine. But if you want her to amplify to her million plus followers, then you're going to need to do the splits. And then it's definitely worth the split to you because it's being, you know, magnified and amplified to her audience base. Well, that's exactly the point, right? Is like, the idea that you would go through a consenting channel rather than a potentially infringing channel, that idea is really boosted when someone like Grimes has the kind of platform that she does, right? And that kind of bears out, you know, one of the things that we were trying to push for in a sense, like pushing for these kind of consenting approaches is that, you know, beyond the kind of cover your ass principle, right, which really looms large when you're dealing with other people's IP, the other side is if you think optimistically about this, like, you know, what benefit is there for you to go through a consenting channel rather than produce a bootleg? And the benefit is exposure, right? The analogy that we used to use, for example, is like, you know, you can go on SoundCloud and probably find, you know, 100,000 Lady Gaga remixes, but the one that actually ends up, you know, being something valuable per se, I mean, value is a really embattled terminology, but like, you know, the one where there's money at the end of that road is the one that Lady Gaga selects herself, right? And so in the case of Grimes, it makes a ton of sense for her to adopt that model. And it also makes a ton of sense for people to want to, you know, collaborate with her in this way, simply because they're going to get so much more attention through doing that than if they were to just post it randomly elsewhere, you know? Yeah, I think it becomes a little bit more complicated when you have like an emergent artist who maybe has a really unique voice. And then people are, you know, creating bootlegs of that that artist's voice before that artist has time to build that level of platform. I think then you're going to have a kind of more complicated scenario. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up is there's definitely kind of this asymmetry between Grimes's stature or like a music artist of her level versus the people that are creating derivatives using her voice. And it's interesting to think through cases where that might not be the case. And further down the road, could we imagine a scenario where people who are creating the derivative works might actually have the bigger brand or have broader distribution than a set of emerging artists? And in that case, does the value actually accrue to people creating those derivatives versus the person with the actual voice? I think that's very interesting to consider. It's a real challenge, right? If you have that platform where your cosign really means something, that is, you know, a very valuable incentive to have people participate in a consenting interaction. If you don't already have that platform, it's really tricky, right? Because I mean, also when you're talking about voices, you know, what gives a voice value, right? Like in some cases, if you're already a successful recording artist with that recognition, right, and a platform, the voice is inherently valuable because you recognize it, it carries with it this valence, right? But if you're just starting out, 
you know, one could imagine a scenario in the near future where there's tens of thousands of pretty cool voices out there that don't carry with them that same currency. Quite whether that model would work in those circumstances is a big question. Still, at the same time, I would argue, though, that I mean, we keep using this term permissive IP. We should credit Jay Springett, our friend who coined that. And he's actually written really mm-hmm. beautifully on this subject of kind of like, you know, this new IP paradigm. But even in the circumstance that maybe you don't have that platform, there is this kind of inexorable push toward it making more sense to be permissive and to be open with it, right? Because being closed with such things is going to be a privilege that maybe, I mean, as far as I understand it, Drake is not super happy about the Drake fakes, right? <laughs> Drake's voice is a very valuable piece of media <laughs> and he might not be super damn with the whole permissive approach and that's his prerogative. But for someone who is not very well known, stepping into this paradigm, it probably does make more sense to consider the scenario of saying, hey, yeah, I actually stand to benefit more from you know, collaborating with people in this kind of strangely decentralized way than I do trying to protect something that, let's be real, you know, might just be another one of the 100,000 voices that are just out there in the ecosystem tomorrow, right? So I think being permissive and then figuring out protocols and norms around how we deal with permissive voices in this way, and you could say the same for artistic style or likeness and all these other kind of derivative spawned, you know, media things that are going to exist pretty soon. Everything points to us leaning into it. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious to get your take, you know, now a couple of years post the announcement around Holly Plus and that DAO. Like, how are you guys feeling about crypto now? And where does crypto fit into the evolving landscape of AI music? I mean, I'm still fascinated by crypto. I mean, just generally speaking, it's not our first rodeo with there being like a surge of interest and then you know, a dearth of interest and then a surge of interest, right? Like, mm-hmm. as you well know, and many people listening likely will know, right? Crypto is a pretty wide field. The vast majority of it, I don't pay much mind to because, you know, there's a lot of rubbish. But in terms of core developments, I mean, it's kind of strange to me that there's like external perception is dwindling around, let's say, the Ethereum network, which just appears to kind of be thriving by all metrics, right? Like it's cheaper, faster. There's a ton of wild, new, interesting things being developed in that realm. So in terms of like experimental technology, which is something that we look at, I'm still very interested in the field. And there's also still no comparable example that has emerged where people are attempting to value digital media, like exchange money <laughs> for digital media in, in in ways that are as customizable as you can offer in, let's say, the Ethereum ecosystem. So, you know, for me, I'm still fascinated by it. And like at least part of our work exists in that realm. The bigger question of, you know, applying it to this challenge, and I can speak to this a little bit regarding, you know, some of the work we've been doing with Spawning too, is for better or worse, there is just a credibility problem. As good as some of the tools are fundamentally I anticipate it will be a while before we get to fully see them exercised for these big fundamental problems. And so, you know, in the case of this kind of unfolding AI conversation, you know, as applicable as a lot of the crypto tools may be for things like provenance and attribution and, 
you know, public ledgers and all these kind of good things, verification, identity, you know, there's all these good, interesting tools that have been developed. The truth of the matter is, you know, most people don't know what a MetaMask wallet is, you know what I mean? And it may take a little bit of time. And when it comes to fundamental kind of AI issues, I don't think we have the luxury of so much time to resolve some of them in the moment. I think it's really interesting for issues around provenance, you know, which wallets spawned, which kind of piece of media. I think that can be really useful. I also think just some of the kind of like building blocks that put agency back in artists' hands to create their own economic models around their work is something that is extremely powerful. I mean, you know, Spotify was really great for the consumer and it was really great for some kinds of music, but it was actually really devastating for other kinds of music, music that I care a lot about because the economic model didn't make sense. A lot of music does not function on a per play valuation. It's the kind of music that you just need to get access to the idea a couple times and then it changes your life, but it's not something you want to hear on repeat in the background. And so... For that kind of work, different kind of economic models need to evolve. And so that's what's so wonderful about kind of crypto building blocks is that you can, you know, figure out what works for you and for your creative community. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a one size fits all solution. Right. Jesse, I want to bring you into the conversation as well, because I think a lot of people know you as a crypto investor, obviously. But I think what is lesser known is the fact that you actually started your career in music back in the day. Can you tell us more about your past life in the music industry and how that intersected with or brought you into crypto? Sure. It feels like another lifetime ago, but it really was, I guess, a decade ago. I was working in music as an artist manager, worked with a lot of artists who I think Matt and Holly, you probably know, and you know, are contemporaries like Solange and Blood Orange and Magical Clouds. And the goal of that management company was to help those artists leverage technology platforms to reach their audiences directly as possible. And in some cases, you know, in lieu of a label. And the intent with that sort of strategy was to just help these artists capture more of the value from their work directly. And I think that's the through line to crypto. What got me excited about crypto initially was the idea that, you know, we're all creators of some kind or other on the internet. We all create some kind of value. And I saw this potential you know, to have more of that value accrue directly to the participants in the networks that generate it because, you know, you can move value in the way that you move bits of information and sort of disintermediate the flow of value and sort of get around the platforms in the same way that we were hoping to get those artists around the labels. So that's what sort of sent me down the, down the crypto rabbit hole initially. And I first got into it doing a startup called Media Chain where we hope to sort of attribute every piece of media on the internet using blockchains and and through that same channel, that sort of attribution or attention could flow back to the creators of media. We thought value could also flow in the form of crypto. So I think there's actually at least some parallels in the origins of that idea and, and then the stuff that you guys, Matt and Holly, are working on today. And so maybe that's a good segue. I'll, I'll leave it to you, Lee, but that's a little bit of my backstory. I could actually, without wanting to embarrass you in any way, but I think there is a real through line. I mean, my brain goes back, it has been a decade. I think it was more like 2014. So this would be like nine years ago. I recall I was living in LA at the time and I was at UCLA and was trying to build like a, it was kind of like a smart contract consent system for media publishing. And a mutual acquaintance, Josh Evian Christ, I remember meeting with him for dinner 
And he was like, oh, you should meet my friend Jesse. The only reason I bring that up is, again, to like Holly's point of about, you know, certain media ecosystems not really flattering, let's say, corners of independent music. I think it's also important to bring up these stories, largely because, one, they go untold, but number two, I do recall that time before, you know, let's say 2014, 2015 or whatever, where there were corners or like pockets of people in independent music really thinking deeply about attribution, consent, new ways of publishing media, new ways of getting people paid. And I think that an independent musical background kind of contributes to that curiosity, right? And these are very much communities that have kind of been let down, I would argue, by Web2 infrastructure. And so, yeah, I often think fondly back to that that moment. And yeah, and it was from that, actually, that I began to learn about Ethereum, largely because it just seemed that those tools were going to be very useful toward giving people some agency over you know, their digital identity or whatnot, right? And I guess that's the through line to your point, Jesse, with some of the work we're doing on now is like consent and agency over media and controlling your public presence in some way has been a 10-year obsession that, you know, (laughs) that it really, it genuinely has. It's like, I mean, it's just funny that like every single project we do in some way keeps coming back to that fundamental thing. And then it just so happens that now, you know, maybe there's more opportunity to kind of explore those ideas within this kind of AI context than there would have been 10 years ago or something. It certainly heightened the need for it. And I think accelerate, like, I think, you know, as you point out, you know, some people have been thinking about it for 10 years. And now I think anyone working in music, it's very top of mind. Whereas, you know, back then it was more, I would say, sort of like a fringe interest for some who were like disenfranchised by Spotify and sort of the status quo. But now it's like, you know, Drake has to think about it too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone does. So yeah, it's certainly accelerated things. And that's good, I think, for what you're working on. And it's good that everybody's finally paying attention. Yeah, I want to drill more into this theme of like new technologies and new business models, potentially empowering independent artists or changing kind of the structure of who gets to be economically successful in music and layering in AI to the equation I'm curious if you guys think that AI changes the power law of success for music artists or it changes like the types of musicians who will become successful or will become obsolete. So I guess maybe first like defining the power law of music, it's like, you know, Taylor Swift, Drake, you know, have many more multiples of streams than sort of independent artists on platforms. And I think you know, that's just a cultural thing, but it's also due in part to the way these platforms function and sort of suggest music. I'll be honest, I feel like I don't have a crystal clear view on how AI sort of plays into the mix here. But my current thought is that AI probably perpetuates the power law of what gets listened to you to some extent. Like, I think what drives my view there is a simple sort of way to think about AI is just giving tools to everyone to make music, right? In the same way, like Instagram made everyone sort of a good photographer by giving you filters, like suddenly everyone can create music far more easily. And so the barrier to entry is lower when you give like, you know, masses new tools, what will they make with it? I think initially maybe, you know, they will you know make derivatives of what they already know and, and love. And so that just plays to the power law in the short term. In the mid to long term, I think maybe there's more opportunity for change in that I think we will see new forms of music emerge because the tools are more accessible. And so, again, running with the Instagram analogy, Instagram, you know, enabled a whole new crop of 
celebrity to emerge in the form of influencer and like kind of a new, I don't know, genre of media that is, you know, that is influencer culture. And maybe similarly, there's potential for new forms of music to emerge sort of bottom up from making the tools more accessible. And I hope that's true. And I'm excited about that. I feel like that will come a little bit later on. And in the short term, we're going to just see a deluge of Drake and Taylor Swift derivatives up to our eyeballs. But that's a very early thought. And I'm frankly, I'm very curious to hear Holly and Matt's view because they certainly thought about this much more than than I have. I think I agree with you with the short term versus the mid to long term that in the short term, you know, in some ways you could almost look at DJing as a kind of precursor to this where, you know, you this is no shade to DJs, but you don't necessarily need to be able to write your own music or even produce your own music to be a really highly paid touring musician as a DJ and you know you can play a new set in in a new city every night and so different things became really important to make super DJs you know really famous like I don't know whether they're like really hot or really relatable or they have like a really cool backstory or whatever there's all kinds of extra musical things that contributed to different DJs success and I think you'll probably also see that as music becomes much easier to generate but then I think hopefully over time I think listeners will or at least a subset of listeners might expect something different from music, a new kind of interaction, building on what we could do before because the tools do make that so much easier. So, I mean, Matt and I often reference this centaur AI approach, which is a term that I learned from Anil Bawakavia, who also agrees with this idea that these tools are much more powerful when they're used with humans together in concert to create something entirely new. Rather than just kind of replacing the human, it's more as a kind of like augmented human capability. And so I think that what we understand as music will fundamentally change and hopefully we'll expect something different. And I think there will be new kind of talents emerge using new skills that we maybe can't even imagine right now. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I also think, I was talking to someone about this recently. It's like, if you look at the kind of through line from, let's say, the old recorded music industry through to, you know, Web2 streaming, through to whatever this next thing is, you know, the first thing you can factor is any like sufficiently adopted technology will offer its own affordances and will choose its own kind of winners, right? Like there are some reasons why a certain kind of artist thrives on Instagram or Spotify. And generally they tend to be the kind of artists that work really well with the affordances of the media environment, right? And AI will create new media environments. I could speculate on some of the things that it might choose to prioritize, but one absolutely is kind of like, celebrity and the ability to kind of tether yourself to the identity of a celebrity, you know, and you've already seen this with web two, right? Like as soon as Instagram was really popular, right? Like people would take pictures of themselves in Nike clothes and do their own fashion shoots and copy Nike and hope for the retweet, right? Or hope for the repost, you know? So that dynamic is going to explode. And I would also argue that's why we're seeing a sea of what if Balenciaga, but Harry Potter, but with Drake voice, right? Like, There's going to be a year or two of just being completely inundated for many of the reasons. I mean, I remember like when Twitter first became a thing, you know, compilation records and DJ sets tended to travel really far because they allowed you to copy the most people for reposts, you know? And I see that same approach with this kind of Balenciaga, Harry Potter, Drake, plus Grimes, plus whatever thing. It's like, okay, how many people can I tag to amplify me, right? But the other side is like, when we're talking about music, what we're actually describing is a really decentralized ecosystem, right? Like 
you know, when most people think about music, they might think about, you know, the first playlist that you encounter on Spotify, because that's their interaction with it. Just as many people prior would have thought about like top 40 hits on the radio, right? We don't come from that tradition. Generally speaking, we participate and have interacted with the music industry in some ways, but from a very different lineage. Like we don't spend our time thinking about, you know, how to gamify, get a single on top of Spotify or something like that. Like we've never once had that conversation. But one thing that did happen, for example, is like Spotify kind of, in some ways, from a certain argumentative standpoint, brought efficiency to a previously inefficient record selling industry, right? So iTunes started this by breaking up the album into songs so you could kind of have an a la carte experience, right? Like you didn't have to buy this physical thing to listen to the one song you wanted to listen to. You could just buy that one song. Streaming stretched that further where, you know, songs were completely divorced from their context. So you might encounter a song on a playlist and never know what record it came from or never care about it. And there's loads of funny stories of this, right? With like independent musicians who have that one song that ended up on a playlist and has like a thousand times more streams than everything else they've ever done. And they didn't even choose that song to be that candidate. It just got put on a ambient sleep playlist or something trashy like that. And so, you know, the one thing that's going to be really stretched, I think now is that like, when you see streaming, what streaming taught us, you know, people at Spotify, of course, are very clever and they're very kind of consumer oriented is that actually the vast majority of people who may have previously had to buy records when they're asked to, don't really care where the music comes from. They just want music as this kind of, you know, Liz Pelly calls it like laid back listening experience, right? It's just a casual thing that sits in the background. They just want something kind of pleasant to listen to. And the kind of music trajectory we come from is very intentional, right? Like we talk about like subcultural things where you actually really care who that person is, where they come from, what city they come from, what style they were involved in creating or whatever. And streaming kind of prioritize the one and deprioritize the other by treating them all as the same, right? By treating them all as the same. This is Holly's point about like valuing everything by per play, which doesn't make any sense for a noise artist as much as it makes any sense for like great art house cinema, right? Can you imagine if you valued like classic works of cinema by how many times you watched them, right? That doesn't work. That economics works for Star Wars alone, probably, right? So when you're now moving into an AI context where things can get really personalized, I'd imagine we'd see a similar big shift and kind of exposure of what people's real motivations are in terms of participating in music ecosystems. Maybe then we'll learn that actually all those laid back listeners who've been pumped the weekend, you know, maybe 75% of them don't really care, you know, and would happily mm -hmm. listen to infinite Drake. They just kind of like something nice to listen to when they drive the kids to school. Do you know what I mean? And maybe having that personal relationship doesn't really matter. This is a very like, not particularly optimistic view of things, but I think we're really going to test that by seeing what happens once we can automate these things further. But I don't think that necessarily, you know, the optimist in me is like, maybe we should just like accelerate those developments as much as possible so that all the other artists can get the memo that they can kind of deviate and move into these more intentional paradigms and stop trying to compete in the kind of all-you-can-eat world of streaming or whatnot. And that also fundamentally doesn't remove the very human desire for musical congregation in real time with other humans. It's like one of our yeah. earliest communication techniques. It's been around since, you know, we've been around. And so that's not going anywhere. It's just the way that it's monetized might be changed and in the way that it's organized will be changed. And that's true. And that also speaks a little bit to our experience with music, right? It's like, it's quite unusual when you talk to people, you know, 
we as music artists can and regularly do fill rooms with thousands of people to come see us play music, you wouldn't be able to tell that from our streams, right? Like, I don't think we've ever checked our streams. I don't care about our streams. I don't think that's ever, it is never, I genuinely do not think I've ever looked and that's not like showing off or something. And I've said many times that when we were mostly focused on the music industry, we were, you know, participants in the live music industry. That was what we did. We put a record out. People want to come and see what we're doing in a place. And that for the last 10 years is what allowed us to be professional musicians. Streams were like an afterthought. It's really only the very top who get to think about these things. And so, you know, this kind of parallel industry of people who actually care where the music comes from and want to turn up and see things. By that same token, I know people who get millions and millions of streams a month who are not professional musicians, right? Well, um, who couldn't fill a room? And certainly couldn't fill a room, you yeah. know? All is just to say that like music is a really wide, wide open kind of environment. And as far as we're concerned, when it comes to like deep subcultures or people who like actually participate and care about music, I'm not really bothered in the slightest. I'm just concerned. I'm just like interested and excited by how, you know, new subcultures will form from you know, some very kind of exciting new tools. Yeah. So just to make sure I understand what you're saying here, basically there's various sub-segments of music listeners. It's not one homogeneous group, but rather there are different segments of listeners. And there are some people who are very intentional with their listening. These are people who would go out, buy albums, buy CDs, buy songs even, because they know yeah. exactly what they want to listen to, the cult fans. And then there's a large swath of the population that has really been served by streaming and these kind of algorithmically generated playlists where they just want a less intentional, more passive lean back experience where they're just sort of like continuously fed music that kind of fits with what their tastes are. Right. And with AI music, I guess like it could potentially play into birth segments. It could potentially continue to generate content for those second set of users who are more passive listeners and just continue serving them the things that really fit what their interests are. And then for like the hyper-intentional music listeners, it could potentially also tailor content to them that suits like the voice and the music artists that they feel a ton of affinity to. I think that's totally right. And we framed it in the past as like the difference between content and intent right? You said mm -hmm. intentional quite a few times, and I think that's totally spot on. It's like, there are two very different paradigms. And one has to imagine that in the realm of content, when I can with a, you know, consumer grade GPU, I can generate and upload a thousand songs a weekend, and that will only get faster and easier, that there's going to be this like crazy content problem. There already is, right? Of just like being able to spam things and just see what sticks. The filtration challenge that's going to come on the streaming side is going to be delicious to watch, right? There's that whole side of things. And then it's like, well, you know, the signal to noise problem there is going to be massive. And so if you actually come from a community or have a practice where you're good at generating signal, I'm not super worried about it. If anything, I think just like the tools give you a whole new suite of of options to better express yourself. And that to me is really fascinating, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think machine learning will be integrated into almost every studio, kind of like the way that the DAW, Digital Audio Workstation, is that what it stands for, yeah, yeah. has been integrated into most kind of recording practices. And, you know, for some people that will mean 
generating the entire song and all of the timbres and, you know, all of the instruments and everything. And for other people, it will be, you know, generating the perfect version of your own natural singing voice or generating the perfect reverb that has maybe like really strange physical properties. So I think there's a whole kind of sliding scale of how people will be integrating it into their work. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was recently talking with a friend of mine, Eugene Wei, the tech writer, and he has this concept that he calls like the creative singularity, which mm-hmm. is basically kind of this tipping point in technology and AI development where we can finally reach this moment where people are served the exact piece of content that is generated and uniquely personalized to them. In contrast to like the entire history of content creation where a creator, whether it be a filmmaker or a music artist or whatever, is creating something and then like puts that out into the world and hope that there's an audience who likes it. This creative singularity moment, he calls it, is like this moment when that model gets inverted, where people can be just continuously fed a diet of whatever it is that has been uniquely created to suit their very individualized tastes and yep. <laughs> my initial reaction to that was like, that's very interesting. And like, you know, that's obviously like so different from what we have today. And yet I feel like it sort of contradicts this other opposing impulse and nature that we have as humans, which is we want to relate to other people. We care about shared yep. experiences that we have with others. Part of the reason why we listen to the music we do and we like the music that we do is it's not just because it's I don't know, like appeal to some part of our brain that's like inherent to us, but because we've experienced it with other people and we can relate to other people over it. And so I think these are all very like nascent thoughts, but I think there's like the kind of this push pull between hyper personalization versus still having very mass popular hits that are still going to perpetuate the power law, but maybe among a different set of artists or a different set of creations than what had previously existed. It's really funny. This question has come up between specifically machine learning engineers and Matt so many times. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just kind of smiling. because, like, <laughs> yeah, th- No, it's funny. I mean, it's like I characterize it as a fetish where it's like, <laughs> the, yeah, the hyper-personalization thing is absolutely something. It comes up often. I mean, let's put it this way, right? It's a fascinating engineering challenge. And that's why I think a lot of ML engineers you know, it's seen as kind of like a North Star in some ways, and I hate it. But <laughs> largely because Lee, I actually agree with you. I think, I mean, my kind of response is, you know, pop music is a promise that you aren't listening alone, right? Mm-hmm. The idea, sure, you could possibly hypothetically pretty soon tailor a song to be the perfect, you know, whatever, four minutes, depending on your listening tastes. But who cares? I My argument is I don't think people will care you know, trying to not be like a soppy romantic or something like this. But we were in Barcelona not long ago. We went to go see Rosalia, you know, perform a bunch of beautiful songs that meant something to the people in the room because it came from someone who grew up in the same city as them. Those songs carry a valence with them universally because they're from her and they're from a particular lineage. And you can tell also when we rarely go to really massive pop shows like that, but like when you go to big pop shows like that, you see what it means for everyone there to know the words to a particular thing and to have all happened upon a song from a different trajectory or something like that. And that's what pop music is. And that's also what subcultures are. You know, there are so many complex and meaningful things going on with, you know, musical rituals and artistic rituals that this fetish of hyper-personalization, I agree, it's a fascinating 
kind of engineering challenge and it's maybe like a, a great warning to issue. I mean, because similar ideas come up, right, with the news, right? Like what if your news feed was tailored personally for you? Like what does that mean for democracy or whatever, right? Again, maybe the most optimistic position is to encourage by all means, encourage people to push in that direction so that we can as quickly as possible learn that's not actually the future we want, right? You could say the same for like over COVID. People were like, oh, that you know, the future of concerts is virtual concerts. And it took, you know, three or four weeks of people experimenting with it to realize that actually we don't want that at all. Do you know what I mean? And actually, I'm kind of grateful that experiment got to be conducted at such a wide scale when nobody could leave their home because now anytime someone brings up, you know, virtual concerts as being the future, I'm like, well, we you know, you had a really captive audience there and, you know, it died a death really quickly because why, you know, also video games are just more engaging, but like why, you know? So yeah, but yeah, that's my very firm position on that. But I agree that debate's going to like rage for a while. I just think, yeah, intent wins out. But we also have already seen that somewhat with kind of algorithmic recommendation systems, you know, we can also see people getting somewhat stuck in their tastes. When I think about my teenage self and the kind of music that I liked as a teenager, I'm so grateful that, you know, some people turned me on to different music that maybe at first listen was abrasive or something that I didn't understand or something that I wouldn't have liked immediately. I'm so grateful to that because my taste widened and my horizon was then expanded. So, you know, this idea of constantly catering to what someone already knows or already likes, that's also, that can create a kind of impoverished aesthetic in a way. Yeah. And I mean, just to harp on this point, like I met Holly through music. I met a lot of my friends through music. I'd argue in some cases I'm meeting both of you through music. Yeah. The complex social function of music being a portal to meet the others, meet the others globally. I have friends in like grindcore bands that have friends in Venezuela and Colombia and, you know, places, far flung corners of the world who they never would have met if it were not for music. Sport also plays this function. Reducing music down to media that can be consumed and personalized is cute for sure. And mechanically reproduced. Um, Yeah, (laughs) it's cute, but it's just missing such a huge part of the picture. Also, notwithstanding, like we're living through like an epidemic of loneliness. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, and actually having a child has been really eye opening for this where, you know, you spend long nights and like I'm on Twitter and I'm reading it in an entirely different way where I'm like, God, like how many of the problems in the world are through us kind of just being absorbed into these kind of algorithmic environments, not to be Puritan about it. We all have to do it to some extent, but like taking that so seriously and missing out on the whole point of it. It's like, no, you enter into these environments to find people, right? And to find things to do and to, you know, open your eyes to new places you could go or new people you could meet or new people you could be like. These are all the complex social dynamics that are happening around art, music, culture that can be so easily kind of undersold when we're talking really about, you know, the ability to spawn derivative media. You know, the same arguments happening in the art space, right, with it's like, oh, it's the death of art, you know, because now anyone can like type some things and create a cool painting. It's like, yeah, you can. But like, I would argue that people don't understand the very complex function of art if they think that doing that changes shit. I mean, it changes some things, but it's like one very small piece of like a really complex puzzle and a vital puzzle and something that needs to actually be kind of defended, you know, and also supported and funded, <laughs> which is the whole other other side to it. I'll stop ranting about this now. It's one of my favorite things to rant about. <laughs> yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said, that importance of like the feeling that you're not listening alone, the promise of another mm-hmm. human being there experiencing the same thing that you are. And I think it tees up really well with some of the thoughts that we had been 
DMing about around how in an age of like proliferated media, the more derivative works exist, the more that kind of proximity or like touch from the creator or co-signing from them matters to people because it will become the thing that is actually scarce if content yeah, becomes time, time, and, so, time and attention and care is scarce yeah, yeah, 100%, yeah. agreed i'd love to hear like an update on a project you guys have been working on over the last year and what's the latest what's happening as everyone has started paying attention to ai has it been a tailwind for you guys spawning or yeah yeah i mean there's a few there's, but... i'm like which project yeah, yeah, there's no. many i'm thinking of one that you raised funding into the venture back project and the name is honestly escaping me right now. Holly Plus, spawning. spawning. Oh, spawning. Spawning. No, not Holly. Not Holly Plus. No, not the Dow. Not the Dow. Well, it's a one in the name. Is. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. So, like, well, we. Have, I mean, Holly Plus was like. I mean, you can go back to the thing we were doing in 2017, like caring about data provenance and consent. So all these projects were kind of leading into that. But yeah, around about a year ago or so, it became really obvious that. You know, something that you all probably realized a lot sooner than we did, that if you actually really want to make an impact on an issue, it really kind of helps to have a sustained way for people to work on it, i.e. like a company. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, spawning's going really well. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, actually, right? Like in the kind of AI ecosystem, there's, of course, a lot of companies who are like thinking about making cool new models, making consumer interfaces for those models, so on and so forth. But there was nobody really thinking about the, you know, creator data part, which is a pretty fundamental aspect to this. And so, yeah, the goal with spawning was like, can we build like a consent and attribution layer for the generative AI ecosystem? You know, we started out, we built a thing called haveibeentrained.com, which was very successful. It was like a very well-used site for people to see whether or not their work has appeared in the common data sets that are used to train AI models. From there, we built an opt-out standard and API so that people could register consent claims on their work. So basically say, I don't want my work used in an AI model. From there, we reached out to a bunch of organizations training models and said, hey, would you honor people's claims given that this is a really uncertain legal environment. Copyright most likely doesn't apply. Still a pretty cool thing to do. You know, stability amongst others have stepped up to say, yes, when we train models, we're going to honor your requests. Yeah. And as of today, we've crossed a billion consent claims made on media. There's an API that passes new consent requests like up to the day. There's a lot I could talk about regarding that. But yeah, I mean, the basic goal is AI needs a consent layer and the standards don't exist, so why don't we build them? And I think we've done, honestly, more work than anybody to build those in place. And I think I can only see it growing. Yeah, it's a really fascinating project. And I think it's doing work that obviously is really important to a ton of artists, especially given the numerous lawsuits that we've seen over the past few months around these AI companies and artists claiming that their data had been used in their training sets without their consent. I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about why is it important for artists to be able to opt out in the first place? And practically speaking, like, does it have any impact at all, given the pace at which the space is moving and the fact that these models seem to be progressing relatively unimpeded, even though some people may opt out of them? Yeah, I mean, I think an important thing to establish is it doesn't actually impede the function of large models for artists, you know, who would prefer their work not to be in there to have their requests honored. And that's actually the good news. And that was kind of the mm -hmm. opportunity we identified is that 
you know, models could work just fine without stepping on the toes of people who need their data to make a living. And so establishing some protocol or etiquette around that is very necessary. The reason why it's necessary, and this it's kind of commonsensical when you put it this way, but like in order for artists or organizations to have their data work for them, they need to make sure that data is not working for somebody else, right? So, you know, take a music example, right? Like if Song Journey, you know, launches tomorrow and you can pay Song Journey to generate music in the style of Artist X, it's going to be really difficult for Artist X to try and stimulate any kind of economy around their private data, you know, a private model, a bespoke model, if that same information and opportunity is available through a public model that they have no control over. And so that's really the point is we're quite clear, you know, we're certainly one of the most prominent AI advocates in the music and art space period. But in order for this to work out economically for everybody, there's going to need to be a consent etiquette in place to give people the opportunity to pursue things like Holly Plus. You know, we were the first artists to, you know, try and build an economy around an AI model. And we think a lot of people are going to do that. But in order to do that, people are going to need some guarantees that data isn't just available on, you know, somebody else's service. I'm fairly optimistic that's how it's going to work out. You know, there's quite how regulation is going to go is one question, but the game theory kind of checks out, right? Like the public partners that we've announced are like Shutterstock and ArtStation. They don't want their data used by somebody else. And so it turns out that if you wrap everybody into an API altogether, you know, the smaller artists can also benefit from, let's say, the leverage of the bigger players, you know, stepping forward and saying like, hey, please don't use our data. We might have plans for it. Right. Right. So, yeah. So I think that's likely how it's going to work out. And, you know, as I said, nobody else was building it. So we took it upon ourselves to take a stab. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to pull in some questions that we got from the public via Twitter yesterday. There was a ton of interest in this episode, and so people left a ton of questions. So there was a question about your suggestions for what record labels and publishing companies should do to adapt to AI music, and also whether there are any regulations that you would recommend. Ooh. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think proceed with caution, right? Like... I mean, there's a lot of FOMO at the moment, and I think at least people I know within labels are kind of doing the right thing, which is following the space, trying to educate themselves on the tools and you know, maybe making steps toward figuring out a position on this. I mean, the good news is we're going to learn this pretty soon, right? Like these kind of Sovitz transfer models that are out there, like the kind that Grimes is using, for example, the kind that people are using for the Drake fix. It's like they're really powerful and they're really cool, but it turns out it's actually still really difficult to make a decent song with them, right? The ghostwriter who, you know, I'm almost convinced is like an LA industry insider of some kind. Because, you know, in order to produce that Drake song, you actually had to execute that song, right? Like somebody delivered those lines, transferred it. Like he had to it sing a- it and then replace his voice yeah. with Drake's voice. Exactly. So if you read some accounts in the media, you would think, oh my God, it's the end of music. We can automate these AI generated songs. It's like, no, it's actually incredibly manual. We can speak to this personally, right? We've like, we've done this. It's like, like making something that sounds half decent with these tools is still probably more challenging than it would have been without using the tools, to be honest, at this point. So there's still a lot of time to figure it out. But the one thing you can be sure of is like, all this is coming. We kind of get this wonderful grace period, this dress rehearsal time where everybody can reach consensus that this is coming. It's going to be a part of media for the next century. And it's not quite ready 
for everything to you know shift overnight. So we have a little bit of time to figure out decorum protocol etiquette norms around how we choose to deal with it. That would be my feeling. I think you're going to see a clash between the owners of catalogs and the owners of personalities. So the people yeah. themselves. So personality rights are going to clash up against catalogs and usage for the generation of models. And I honestly don't know how that's going to go, but that will be a... Yeah, a flashpoint. Well, yeah, if you paid an exorbitant amount of money for the Fleetwood Mac rights and then somebody wants to go make a... Well, now you can have infinite Fleetwood Mac, you know, singing to today's news or whatever. <laughs> then, you know, is it the people who own the catalog or is it the human beings who created that work you know, themselves? Yeah, so there's going to be a lot. Exactly. That's, a lot of that's going to be contested because a lot of those deals do have these weird clauses in them where it's like, any change in technology, including acts of God and all this, all this weird like pseudo spiritual curses that are stuck into these things. And it's like, well, no, you know, exactly. A lot of deals were signed just as a lot of like creative commons licenses and data permissions. These were signed for a very different media environment, not necessarily this one. And so, yeah, this is going to drag on. I think our advice to most artists right now is to just not sign anything or yes. at least be really slow about it because you're also going to see a lot of platforms popping up here and there and you don't want to sign away your rights to a platform that just somehow doesn't work out and then your voice or your IP or whatever it is kind of like stuck in this graveyard somewhere. Well, this is the thing. We don't yet know, for example, if your voice is an inalienable right, right? Voice is not copyrightable. We don't quite know how this is going to transpire with models. My nightmare scenario is someone finds a kid on TikTok and is like, hey, here's $40,000 right? Sign this piece of paper. We don't want that to happen. I hope regulation would actually come in to make mm -hmm. it certain that could not happen because I actually think that would be a violation of like a human right. For someone and, to sign away that, all of their rights to their voice forever. Perpetuity. I mean, well, that's and, a little yeah. mermaid. Uh, yeah, that's meme. a little mermaid. Meme. I mean, I mean <laughs> but, but it's like these kind of ghoulish scenarios are a real possibility. And $40,000 is an insane amount of money to a 19-year-old, right? Like, I think it's like, why wouldn't that happen? This is my question. Well, exactly. It seems very likely that's, yeah. what's, that's probably already happening, right? Yeah. Uh, and so in that scenario, this is where on the terms of regulation, it sounds a bit science fiction, but it really won't in five or 10 years. Like, I think in the spirit of Holly Plus, on the regulatory side, we need to take very seriously that our digital twins are us, right? Mm -hmm. And so- there needs to be serious regulatory thought about dealing with that. If we're entering into a scenario in which our digital, you know, twins are potentially more economically productive than our physical corporeal <laughs> existence is, there needs to be a bill of rights to protect for that. And we have some examples like this with GDPR with like data privacy stuff, but I think it needs to go way deeper. And legally, we don't have a legal concept for what an AI model even is. You know, it doesn't, work in the same way that copyrighted media did. So I think, yeah, if you're a lawyer in the space, you know, like... I think you'll probably what, see the EU moving on this first. 100%. They tend to be a little bit more aggressive in this space. So I think we'll see that first and then we'll see how the US responds. 100%. But this is also where I think there are parallels also in some cases with some of the stuff happening with crypto, right? It's just like the regulation is going to be crazy slow and you're really dealing with layers of abstraction conceptually that people are just not ready for, you know? It, and political self-interest. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. There needs to be serious regulatory consideration for what it means to have a digital twin in the circumstance. Because, yeah, a kid shouldn't be able to sign away their voice, period, right? I'm curious if you guys have paid any attention to the project WorldCoin. Of course, yeah. Which is, <laughs> yes. And as you guys are 
talking about this, it comes to mind you know, for listeners that aren't aware, WorldCoin is a project founded by Sam Altman of OpenAI. And it's one of its aims is to give every unique human on the planet a, a digital identity that proves that they are in fact a unique human. And they accomplish this by scanning the iris of that person in a secure way in a device that sort of generates proof that the person is unique. And then that sort of attestation is put on a blockchain. And as you're talking about the concept of digital twin, what comes to mind for me is, is how, you know, you might be able to use AI models themselves to sort of create a stamp that defines this is my digital twin. This is my voice. This is my face. This is my likeness in much in the same way that sort of WorldCoin uses AI models in their device to detect you know, you are in fact a unique human that your iris is, belongs to your face and is unique. And so I think regulation and some concept of digital twin and the rights around that from a regulatory perspective is one path, but as you mentioned, probably a slow path. And then I'm wondering, you know, what are the sort of market-driven paths that might be able to accomplish the same? And I mean, and this is very aligned with what you guys are working on, right? It's like a library of everyone's sort of voice, for example, or everyone's stuff. But can you build that into a sort of universal concept of, you know, digital likeness or digital identity that plays a role here? Yeah, totally. And I'd be curious to talk more to the WorldCoin guys. I mean, I think that the basic idea is sound. I do have nightmarish science fiction scenarios in my head of like eye harvesters, you know, <laughs> walking around with necklaces of different people's retinas to check right. out. But I'm sure they thought of that. But I think it will just drip out, right? Like I've seen news this week that Apple is encouraging people to you know train voice models on the next ios what i read into that is that it will likely be very common soon particularly with their kind of like on-device encryption approach it'll be very common soon to be able to verify the provenance of a voice when you hear it right so that you can guarantee that the thing that you're hearing on the phone is who you expected it to be i'd anticipate that's maybe what they're thinking about regarding that and so i think there's going to be a lot of approaches whether it's, you know, through, you know, infrastructure like Apple, which, you know, is obviously very common or more open source approaches or more crypto approaches to just like, yeah, do the whole proof of humanity thing. I think that's that already happens in the prison system. Yeah, they make voice models of the prisoners and the people that they're in contact with without their consent. And then those kind of conversations are searched and cataloged. And yeah, that's well, didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Apple's not going to do that. But yeah, well, yeah, same with the retina scan thing, right? Like the UN does that. That's kind of like a, you know, the same technology WarCoin uses, I believe, is like the standard within like refugee camps and stuff to be able to track people and distribute resources. But yeah, I just think it will be a slow drip drip, right? It's like inevitably, you know, you're going to need to be able to establish the provenance of all of these things. And, you know, it's really hard to tell in the short term, like, what you know i mean there's always this problem of like you can on a piece of paper try and design the perfect approach and in reality it will likely be a drip where you know apple's pursuing this thing and then maybe they create the standard you know there's all these kind of very interesting projects in the crypto space that have challenges and it'll probably it'll take like five to ten years for us to to figure out how you know you don't want to be able to lose your keys to your <laughs> identity right like yeah and you in, also in, you want to be able to maintain anonymity in certain cases and you also want to be able to maintain plurality like there may be 10 digital use and they exactly. have different personalities and they're interacting with different communities so it's much more complicated than just the physical world totally and kia gnosis has done a lot of great work on that particular like the plural identity mm -hmm. side right like who's to say that that, you know, your digital twin can't be digital twins and right. and they're all you, right? Like, so, so managing all this stuff. But 
all I will say is that like, if we've already reached consensus that all this stuff needs to be built, there's going to be a 10 year process of experimentation, testing the waters to see what works. But yeah, th there can be no doubt that all of this needs to be addressed as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, you know, people in a position to fund things as well are on board with that now, maybe in ways that five years ago would have seemed, you know, abstract, right? Yep. Okay, last question. This came from someone on Twitter. What do you guys think will be the same in the music industry in three years? Not what changes, but what remains the same. And I'll pose this to everyone, Jesse, Holly, and Matt. Oh, God, I... <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is so glib. I don't want to say it. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say that musicians are all still attractive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's actually true. That's so true. Yeah. It's a Louis C.K. joke. <laughs> He's like, what is it with musicians? Why are they all attractive? It's true. <laughs> I've said this forever. I actually offended someone one time. Like, and I'm like, it's just true. I, I, it's horrible to say, but it's like, yeah, people are like, oh, well, you can spawn infinite media. I'm like, well, there's the hot principle. I mean, it's like, it's really rare for musicians not to be a little bit hot. Like, I mean, it's, sorry, it's like, that's that's Lindy. That's really funny. And it's true. It's true. You don't tend to see. It's really rare. And if you do, it tends to be like the distinguishing feature of them is like, oh, but they look kind of crazy or something. <laughs> what, what came to your mind first? I mean, I think you said it before is just like, as people who mostly been participants in the live music industry, that has already been the lifeblood of most of the music that I really care about for so long mm. that like when people talk about, you know, the changing media landscape, I just keep coming back to that. You know, the classic example is like DJs. Again, like when we started training neural model networks in like, you know, 2016 or whatever, we also started a choir. One of the reasons for that is that, you know, even though you can automate the sound of a choir, going to a room full of people is the point of being in a choir or the point of seeing a choir. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to turn up to see, they might turn up if it's an art installation and it's a one-off, but nobody really wants to turn up to see a computer produce a very realistic choir performance. It's the, right? most, it's the most popular hobby in the United States, being in a choir. Well, and church, I guess, is the part of yeah. it. But yeah, exactly, exactly. But for good reason, right? It's like, and it's the same with DJs. Like, DJing, of course, at the very high end, there are remarkable DJs who do great things. But, you know, the standard DJ, a lot of the things that they do could be automated, but that misses the point, right? There are all these other complex social interactions going on. Like, you know the person playing comes from a city that you want to go to. You aspire to be the person playing. The person playing is hot, right? There's, <laughs> there's all these kind of things that mean that automating that would be kind of missing the point, even though you could automate it, right? And so I think that, you know, a lot is going to change, no doubt, but the thing that I trust ultimately is that like, rather than worrying so much about how these automation tools are going to take away or remove things that you hold dear, likely you hold them dear for reasons that extend beyond, you know, the media that's exchanged. There's likely many other reasons why you hold them dear. So I won't be too worried about them. It's just more interesting to get excited about like, you know, what are the base affordances of these tools and what new kind of rituals and new kind of things, strange things are we going to see emerge from them? You know, that's the most interesting question is like in 20 years time, as a result of a little bit of AI being in everything, there are going to be certain kinds of practices and rituals and new, you know, ways of making money and new kind of jobs that exist that we don't really have a strong concept of. And that's a far more interesting conversation 
because it might well turn out to the point earlier, right? Like it might well turn out that like, you know, streaming's pretty Lindy and actually, you know, that's what people want. And actually maybe all these automation tools don't make that big of an impact on something like streaming because streaming just kind of met exactly a need and why would you need for it to be more automated yeah. than it already is? Yeah. That was going to be my thing. And I know it's, this is way more boring than yours, but I, in our time scale of three years, I think streaming is still the dominant, you know, form of consumption for all the new stuff that's coming just because it is the form factor that is most aligned with like the way that we consume information mobily, whatever. It's like, that's going to stay the same, even if the contents of what is getting streamed start to change kind of dramatically. And I think fundamentally, like I've had some pushback toward this, but I'll still defend the point. It's like, I think fundamentally when we talk about artists, generally the kind of artists that we admire are people who make choices or do things in a virtuosic or an idiosyncratic way that differs from the baseline. So, you know, AI tools just increasing baseline capacity for everybody equally says nothing, doesn't change the dynamic that really the people we're going to end up paying the most attention to are the people who do something more interesting with that baseline or are hot, right? So it's like, so, you know, so the example is like, samplers just meant that everyone could sample and then you have like dj screw did something crazy with samples and it sounded crazy and everyone's like wow you're really good with a sampler right like there's going to be people who are really good at manipulating models and neural networks and we're going to be like oh wow that didn't exist before we're probably going to pay more attention to them than the person you know pressing refresh on song journey right so the thing that won't change even if we see like which I'd imagine we will, maybe not in three years, but longer term, like wide-scale adoptions of these tools, the thing that won't change is that we'll tend to pay attention to and bestow the category of artist on people who are really good at exploring things, you know, having ideas and expressing themselves in ways that other people are maybe not as good at, you know, or maybe aren't as resonant with. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had sort of posited this on Twitter loosely as well, which is that maybe like with the equalization of talent in terms of the quality of one's voice through AI, because right now, obviously, we live in a world where everyone has their natural born voice and not everyone is a great singer innately. But like, if that equalizes, then perhaps what differentiates people are other assorted attributes that they have beyond that. So maybe the emphasis then becomes how charismatic or hot or how interesting or how funny they are. And those become the distinguishing factors for, you know, what makes someone stand out. But it is very interesting to think of like the whole bundle of what comprises like a, a great artist right now. And to think about how the availability of tools maybe changes what audiences care about. Yeah. And I mean, what's the like, it's always been that way meme, right? Like mm-hmm. there's often, I don't think that you all fall into this trap, but there's often a misconception that the best singer is the most popular artist, right? Like, I mean, if you look in the realms of like the majors, like the major record industry, that's almost never been the case, right? It's always, you know, someone who's relatable or someone who catches a moment or someone who has an interesting story or an interesting face or whatever it might mean, right? Like nobody would argue. I mean, I think Ingwa Malmsteen, who's like, you know, this insane guitarist who can like play with, you know, 11 fingers or whatever, like, He's really good at playing the guitar in an impressive way, but no one would ever say he's the best guitarist, right? Like it's not, right? The generally speaking, you know, we tend to cluster around people and artists for various different reasons, and our argument would likely be 
this again comes down to the the point and why more so in the art world but also extends to the music world like why a practice is important right like there's an ineffable thread that runs with artists that i admire they can work in lots of different media they can work on different ideas over time their voice will change or they might stop using it or they might never have used it but there's an ineffable thread that ties something they did 25 years ago to something you know they do 25 years later and you tend to call that a practice or a personality or a combination of both you know and approximating these things in automated environments is going to be really tricky you know so i think they're going to be incredibly economically consequential and there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built to make sure that you know wherever this economy goes artists aren't left behind you know individuals aren't left behind i mean let's be real we're all in some ways participants mm-hmm. in a celebrity economy now to some extent right but when it comes to you know artistry and the kind of narratives that we buy into and the things that we enjoy you know i think we often underestimate just how complex and fundamental those desires are it's not so easy right. as just being able to generate a song on the fly you know <laughs> absolutely i think that's a great point to end on matt holly jesse thank you so much for coming on the show this was great and best of luck with all of your projects and the baby really appreciate your taking the time let's do this again soon it's a great pleasure yeah it's always lovely to catch up with you all and thank you for such a thoughtful discussion let's do it again thank you guys awesome thank you